Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. So our speaker tonight, Raj Singh, is CEO of Accolade, which is a personalized health advocacy company for employers, health plans, and health systems. He joined the company as a board member, investor, and CEO in November of 2015. And today, Accolade has 800 employees focused on driving better outcomes and increased satisfaction for healthcare consumers while delivering savings for healthcare payers. Prior to Accolade, in 1993, he co-founded Concur which is the global leader in travel and expense management. And that was just two years after graduating from Western Michigan University. In the 20 years that followed, he worked in nearly every role in the business, culminating in his final role as president, chief operating officer, and board member. By that time, Concur was acquired in 2014 by SAP for over $8 billion. Besides his role at Accolade, he serves on the boards of Avalara, Aptio, and Amperity, which probably means if your company doesn't start with an A, you shouldn't ask him to be on your board, right? He's also on the board of the Seattle Children's Health Foundation. So please join me in welcoming Raj Singh to Seattle University. Thank you, sir. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Great. It's fantastic. It's lovely to almost see you. You heard the topic of the day. The idea is that I want to share with you three principles. And so I'll start with those three principles, and then we'll try to wrap up with them as well. But we'll tell some stories around how those principles apply and the way I've been able to apply those principles in my life. And hopefully there's some lesson you can take out of each of those stories that's of some value to you, at least that you can pull out of this conversation. And so here are the three really simple principles. The first is a really simple one that I think is right in front of a number of you. You have a choice to make coming soon in your lives as to what you want to do and to where you want to go. And you have an imperfect set of information in front of you about how to make that choice. And then the question becomes, how do you make that choice? I would submit to you, the answer to that is answering your why. There's an author by the name of Simon Sinek who talks about the idea of it all starts with why. Why do you want to do what you want to do? And understanding your why is the beginning of that journey for you. The second part of the story, in my mind, is the idea that a part of that why is attached to the principles and values of who you are. And that your opportunity to link what you do to your principles and values will ultimately lead to happiness in your life. The further you get away from those principles and values, you risk unhappiness. And I believe, fundamentally, that the great capitalists of the next generation will build businesses based on principle and good. And if they don't, we run the risk of permanently destroying something spectacular that's been created in this country. Third, that those people who decide that they're gonna link their principles, that they're gonna choose their why, and then go build something, will do so by asking different questions than people have asked in the past. They'll do so by asking contrarian questions that say, Why does it have to be this way? Great capitalists 
moving forward will build their business based on principle and will ask contrarian questions that question the very existence of the rules that exist that are as they are today. So those are the three principles. Nothing big, nothing too heavy for you, uh, nothing too heavy for you on a Wednesday night. So we're going to try to enunciate those three principles in three stories. And as we tell the story, hopefully we'll trigger some questions for you and we'll get right to those in a moment. Start with number one. I promise I'm not to go from the very beginning, from day one and give you every day, but I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, spent my life mostly in the Midwest, in the great Midwest in Michigan, and was raised by two Indian immigrants, first generation Indian immigrants. If there are any Indian immigrants in the room, you know very well what that means. It means I was raised to basically study all the time. And the profound idea that my parents most imparted upon me was that if I did not become a doctor, I would be a massive disappointment to them and to everyone else in the family. But an engineer could be a close second. But after that, it was all downhill. And so I followed that path. I followed that path. I became an engineer, even though it really wasn't my passion. I did it because I wanted to make my parents happy. And if you met my four foot, nine inch mother, you'd realize why I was scared of her. And I became an engineer. I went to work, like, like many people do growing up in Michigan, I went to work at Ford Motor Company. And I was a mediocre pedestrian engineer. And so I began to work the grind that many people work. I worked from nine to five, Monday through Friday, and I used to talk about this with my friends. By Wednesday, I was dreaming about what I was gonna do on Saturday on that weekend. I decided somewhere in that journey that I can't do this anymore. This is no fun. Maybe there's something else I can do. Maybe I should be a lawyer. So I took my LSATs, decided to go to Notre Dame Law School, super fired up, not necessarily because I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but because I knew I didn't want to do what I was currently doing. It's not always easy to understand what the right path is. And then something magical happened for me. My brother, Steve, and his close friend, Mike Hilton, were about to start a business, where they were about to start a business in this super sexy category. It was called expense reporting. And I was 23. And I thought, my God, if I could work on expense reports the rest of my life, I would be the happiest man alive. <laughs> That's not true. That's not what happened. What I said was, I don't want to work on expense reports, but I'll work on this with you for six months until law school starts, and then I'm out. But this is when the magic happened. I had an opportunity to go to San Francisco. We first started the company in San Francisco. We eventually moved it to Seattle. I had an opportunity to go to San Francisco, and I met all these people who were working on apps, nothing altogether all that different than expense reporting. They were building word processors or spreadsheets or whatever they were working on. But man, they had this energy about them, like they were about to change the world. They believed they were on a wave that was gonna change everything. And I looked at them, this guy working for the weekend, and I thought, I want what they're having. And that's when everything changed for me. I took a bite of this apple that like changed my life. And the idea was, these people thought they could change the world. And I looked at them and I thought, well, I want to change the world. I can do that. Can I? Like, what's different about them than me? And my why became, I want to change the world. I want to have an impact on the way this planet rotates. And if I can do that, then I'm going to do whatever it is. Whether I make a dime or I don't make a dime, I'm taking a run at that. And every decision, professionally for me, has been guided by that thought. Starting and sticking with Concur through a 22-year journey, I'll tell you about in a couple of sentences in a moment. Or starting at Accolade, a healthcare company. I was an expense reporting guy for 22 years who started at a healthcare company. And everybody, save my wife, my children, and my two closest friends, said that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. 
And, then, and believe me, there's been many days over the last four years I thought they were right. But every decision, I've, every decision professionally that I've made has started with that why. Am I in it for the right reasons? Am I chasing the thing I want to chase? Am I doing what's right for my soul? I would put to you that your why is imperative. It doesn't have to be my why, by the way. It shouldn't be my why. It's got to be yours. But whatever your principles are, you've got to link yourself to those principles. You've got to link yourself to that why. And if you get too far away from it, if you let money, prestige, opportunities take you too far away from that principle, you risk your own unhappiness. So let's jump to principle number two, that the great entrepreneurs of the future, you, by the way, will build businesses based on principles. And I'll do it really telling you about an expense reporting company if I could. It was a 22-year journey for me. And in that 22-year journey, a lot of things happened. I'm going to try to condense that 22-year journey into about 10 sentences. The company started in 93. By 1998, you are all too young to remember this, which actually annoys me to a no end. By 1998, we were a public company. It was what was called the first dot-com boom. It was too early for us to be a public company. We made a mistake becoming a public company, and we crashed. And we crashed hard in 2001, to the point that our company was worth about $8 million. And that's an important point to note, because we had already raised like $50 million. So this company that would eventually sell for $8 billion at that time was worth $8 million. And we had a lot of self-reflection to do. And I'll spare you all of the stories of that self-reflection but I will tell you this, if you read stories of Concur, and I don't expect that any of you have, but if you read stories of Concur, people will talk about these strategic pivots. They chose the cloud, they did this, they did that. All of those things are true. The one thing that saved that company and turned it into something great is us pivoting, yes, pivoting back to our values, pivoting back to writing down our culture, pivoting back to choosing people, not based on their resumes, but based on whether they believed in the same things we believed in. And that when we really made that choice, when we really began to build the company that way, magically, the numbers started to come. There is no shortcut for greatness. Ultimately, you, you have to build it based on a foundation. The foundation you choose will be your own. You can choose to build it based on technology. You can choose to build it based on people. Or you can choose to base it on value and let your technology and people come from those values. And I would put to you that that idea, to me, cemented one giant thing. That if you can surround yourself with people that you love, who share your values, who want to go at a hard problem, there's very little you can't do. And here's the corollary to the story that you may not love as much. If you do that, even if you fail, it's going to be okay. That's principle number two. And this one's really important because I said something I think that wasn't meant to be provocative, but I think it is, which is, if the next generation of capitalists don't change their behavior, then maybe there won't be as much capitalism anymore. And I'm actually a proud capitalist. I'm not scared to say that. I'm a liberal, and I'm a proud capitalist. We can build companies that do good for the world and do them while doing well for shareholders. It's OK to build companies and OK to make profits and OK, more than OK, to do good for the world, which leads me to the last concept. And that's this idea of contrarianism. And I just want you to think about it and think about everything you look at. Because here's, here's what happened in the last generation. In the last generation, or in my father's generation. See, I'm trying to lump myself in with you young people right now. You see that? But my dad is an old guy. 
In the last generation, when you came out and you wanted to work on cars, you went to work at General Motors. In the last generation, when you came out and you wanted to work on energy, you went to work at Exxon. There's a author and a business person who I'm not a particularly huge fan of, but whose idea makes a ton of sense to me. His name is Peter Thiel. And the idea is this idea of contrarianism. What truth that all of your friends believe do you fundamentally disagree with? And if you were to think about that idea, let's think about it this way. When first solar was started, they didn't think about reducing carbon emissions. They said, how about no carbon emissions? How about none? When Tesla was founded, they didn't think about how do I get better miles per gallon? They said, let's be done with gallons. What if we rethought the way everything worked? And in my view, and now I'm gonna tell you my story, the story of Accolade. What we're trying to do is reconfigure healthcare, to change the way healthcare works, to make it surround and improve the lives of individuals. Healthcare in this country is broken, and it's broken for a whole bunch of fundamental truths that need to be made untrue. And let's start here. The entire industry is built around this concept that we want to control cost. So all of these businesses are built around controlling cost. Insurance companies theoretically are built around the idea of controlling cost. What if we said, let's not start with controlling cost because that's not the end objective. The end objective is healthy people. The end objective is making people's lives better. So what if we started first and foremost with an understanding of the human being and attempting to do the right thing for that individual? Well, that would change all of the questions you ask about how to solve the problem. The second fundamental truth that exists in healthcare today is that the entire industry is organized by disease or by condition. There's people who treat diabetics over here. There's people who will deal with your back pain over here. There's people who will deal with your behavioral health, your depression and your anxiety over here. And they don't necessarily work together because they're organized by condition. Here's the problem. I'm a diabetic with hypertension and I'm depressed. And I'm all of that in one person. And I'm not one of those conditions. I'm a human being. I'm a father. I'm a professional. And I need help on all of those things. Well, that's true. I'm not actually a diabetic or hypertensive or depressed. But it was a good story for the point of my, to emphasize my point. The idea is that we have to think about people as people and understand all of their context as opposed to thinking about people as conditions and attempting to wrestle them to the next step in their condition. And if that's true, we begin to untie the next sort of broken promise of healthcare. That it's not about the transaction, getting you to the doctor and getting you out of the doctor. It's about understanding your journey. What are we trying to achieve? And as we try to understand your journey, we have to understand you and your family. Why? Because fundamentally, when you think about that story, what if your son's asthma medication is so expensive that you can't afford your own? Oftentimes you won't tell your doctor that story, but if we can understand that that's true, we can figure out ways to solve problems in order to get you both to your healthiest outcome. What we're fundamentally doing at Accolade is looking at healthcare not through the lens of revenue per doctor, not looking at through the lens of cost savings per employee, but instead looking at it through the lens of how do we improve that person's life and get them to the right outcome. And that's why we're seeing the success we're seeing, and that's why we hope to continue growing our business. So I'm gonna wrap it up now and turn it to questions. Three ideas, three ideas that I hope in some way, shape, or form tickle your heart. The first and foremost is if you don't know your why, you're gonna be lost. Find it, spend time digging on why you do what you do and why you're gonna be who you wanna be. The second is, Seek businesses that are built on principle or go build your own. 
And the third is don't accept the orthodoxy of the way things work today. We have to fundamentally challenge them if we want to change the way things are going to be tomorrow. I'm thrilled to be able to spend time with you. I get a ton of energy, even though it's so dark in here, from all of your energy and all of your youth. I'm like a vampire uh, feeding on your youth. I'm thrilled to be here with you, and I can't wait to answer your questions. So first, that is Ann Jarris, furthest from me. She is a emergency medicine physician and graduate of our Leadership MBA program. She's currently CEO of Discovery Health MD, which is a company that provides medical services to the commercial maritime industry. And that business concept was the winner of the 2017 Seattle U Harriet Stevenson Business Plan Competition. She's also CEO of MD Solutions International, which supports companies in deploying automated external defib-related programs. And she just recently returned from a three-week trip as expedition physician to the Falkland Islands, South Georgia Island, and Antarctica. Wow. So thanks for coming back for this, Anne. And then next to her is Natalie Pinkerton. She's a current student in our Leadership EMBA program. She's Director of People Strategy and Operations for Seattle Children's Hospital, where she leads strategic initiatives to enhance the patient, family, and workforce experience. Prior to her work in healthcare, she was part of the leadership team for the nonprofit organization that opened the 911 Memorial and Museum in New York City. And then closest to me is Mariana Marquez. She is an undergraduate student majoring in economics. <clears throat> She's from Mexico City and transferred to Seattle U last year from the Mexico Autonomous Institute of Technology. She has a very strong interest in how behavioral economics can be used to improve individual and societal well-being. And after graduation, she hopes to pursue graduate studies in economics. So those are our panelists. Ian, I'll, I'll go first with you, okay? Uh, first of all, thank you very much. That was a very rousing presentation, and I love it when people talk about the fundamentals of what we need to be doing to be successful and do good in this world. And I'm extraordinarily happy to hear that you like contrarian questions, because I got nothing but contrarian questions. <laughs> but I'm going to start nice. So my first question, I really enjoy watching non-medical people get exposed to the U.S. healthcare system. I kind of enjoy watching the uh, horror when people discover the inefficiencies and the misaligned incentives. I don't think the inverse is always true. People who aren't ready for the US healthcare system do not always find it quite as joyous. I, but please, go ahead. <laughs> but what I enjoy most out of it is watching people take the lessons they've learned, the cross-fertilization, people coming in from other industries and saying, you guys are crazy, you have to fix this, this is how I would fix it. So when you started to get exposed to the dysfunction in the healthcare system, what lessons did you take from your prior experience? What could you apply? And how did you approach this giant challenge of trying to function in such a dysfunctional system? So thank you for your question. I think I'm gonna give you one on each side. So one, what did I take from my previous life that I think we've really tried to apply at Accolade in the healthcare system Healthcare is not built around the consumer in any way, shape, or form. No one even pretends it is. There's individual experiences that are all geared towards, well, here's your primary care doc, and she lives over here, and here's your behavioral health specialist, and she lives over there, and they don't even talk to each other, and their billing systems are different, and you gotta figure out all your codes, and all that sort of stuff is not built around, how do I help that individual get to the right outcome? Almost every other consumer experience in the country 
is built around how do I make it easy for the consumer to come take advantage of my services? That was a principle that we fundamentally understood from travel and really thought about how do we apply that for consumers and make it easy for consumers. And they're really not consumers. No one wants to be a consumer of healthcare. It's the wrong word. They're patients, they're people. How do they get to where they need to go without having to figure out all of this madness? That we took from our previous lives and applied. What we didn't really take from our previous lives and that is just fundamentally contrary in healthcare to everything else you might think about from a technology perspective is that healthcare needs people. You can't give people an app and say, it's all in there, figure it out. There's good reviews of docs. Like Consumer reviews of docs are not necessarily all that valuable. And so people need a human being who knows their benefits, who knows the medical system, a nurse to help them understand their conditions and what questions to ask their doctor. Most technology solutions or technology people like me wouldn't have really grokked the idea that healthcare is a combination of incredible technology and incredible people helping human beings. And that, I think, is the thing that didn't come from what we did before. I would argue that your physicians are also your customer. And in many ways, the services that you're providing to the patients are benefiting the physicians too. You know, I totally agree with you. And, and I would say as well, it's hard right in this country right now to get the attention of a physician and tell them you want to help and have them believe you. There's so many people who supposedly are trying to help them but are really trying to get more revenue out of them in the revenue billing cycle, right? When we go from serving one and a half million people to 10 million people, I hope we'll be able to tell our story and more doctors will understand, hey, I know that that person is wrestling. It's more than just their condition. Their wife just lost their job. They're really stressed about their finances and they're feeling that kind of stress is turning into anxiety. And if we don't treat the anxiety, we're not gonna have to worry about the diabetes. And one day, I think we're gonna be in a position where we can share that data with the doctor. Thanks so much for your presentation. You talked a bit about pivot points in your business, and I believe you previously referred to them too as inflection points. I would love to hear about what those pivot or inflection points have been in your experience of leadership. Sure, sure, thank you for the question. This is a little code for you, for, for everyone in the room. When technologists say pivot points, it means they screwed something up and had to change it but a better way to say it is pivot point. And so that, that's a little marketing for you right there. You know, for us, every time you go through a journey, you recognize, hopefully you recognize, hopefully you have the introspection and the understanding that, to be able to look at the journey and, and realize you're not gonna make all the right decisions. And what's imperative, particularly if you're gonna start something at an early stage, is that you're in a constantly learning loop to determine how do I find out what people really want. So there's a principle in here. I want to fix healthcare. I want to make it better. That's what this team at Accolade wants to do. But how we want to make it better, we have to be willing to morph because the market may not be willing to buy it that way. Consumers may not want it that way. And your original premise, stay true to the original principle, but be willing to sacrifice all of the individual ideas that you thought were brilliant that aren't. Because if no one wants to buy it and no one's gonna get value from it, as cool as the idea seems, it's not that cool. That's a hard thing for founders. That's a hard thing for entrepreneurs. It's a hard thing for business people, period. Because we fall in love with our products. We fall in love with our ideas and what we should fall in love with is solving the problem. And so pivot points to me are looking at opportunities and understanding 
is it time for me to sacrifice this idea that I thought was so beautiful to find a new idea that's really going to solve the problem? And that comes in a number of forms. Sometimes that's products. Sometimes that's financials. Sometimes that's people, unfortunately. But each one of those moments are moments where we have to decide, are we here to solve the problem or are, are we here to aggrandize our ideas? And we've got to be about solving the problem. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it was a pleasure to hear you speak. And my question is more about Agodash and how it differentiates from another electronic health record systems. Because my understanding is that your company is developing products towards these systems. So my question is how can you improve everyone's or the patient's welfare and how are you doing it differently from your competitors? Thank you for the question. We fundamentally believe that the way the healthcare system works in the United States today is unfortunately built around, from a health system perspective, built largely around a fee-for-service model. And by that I mean that we get paid to deliver knee surgeries and therefore we do a lot of knee surgeries. That's the simplest explanation of it. The flip of that is beyond the health systems, you have different profit motives in different areas and, and those misaligned incentives create poor outcomes for individuals, for the people who ultimately are the customers of healthcare. And so our vision is a really simple one and luckily for us, it's proven to be true. The core premise of what we do is say, if I can surround that individual with people who can help them and their family, and we get them to make good decisions to say, you know what, before you go to the emergency room, maybe we can help you get a telemedicine visit. That's one way to lower cost. But hey, before you decide it's time for back surgery, maybe we'll get physical therapy. Maybe, maybe before you make that really important decision, we can help you make decisions. Or, hey, did you know your preventative care benefits are free? We can help you get your preventative care benefits because you should go see a doctor once a year and understand things. Or if you're a woman and you haven't seen your OBGYN in two years or three years, that we can help you and that some of those benefits are free. All of those things are things that we can make people aware of, help them schedule the appointment with their doctor, help them understand the questions they should ask their doctor. That when we do those things and do the right thing for that individual, we find out that their costs come down while they get happier. Their outcomes improve. They go to the emergency room less. They take their medication more often. Their productivity improves. Their absenteeism goes down. All of these things happen. Why? Because we reconfigured everything to say, I'm gonna do the right thing for you no matter what. Tell me what you need. Tell me why you need it. I'm gonna help you make good decisions. This is the question that gets me not asked back. <laughs> I like you and I wanna stay in touch with you, so I apologize in advance. Uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna be the judge of that. <laughs> So I appreciate what you're doing, and my understanding is that you're helping people navigate the system more efficiently. It's a great business model. I mean, even if you can have a modest 5% savings, that, that those numbers really rack up over time. But let's be real, you're not really disrupting healthcare. You're making a highly dysfunctional system marginally more efficient. It's the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. You seem like a really smart guy with a big heart. You have a lot of resources, a lot of data, a lot of influence. So how can you truly disrupt the dysfunction that is the U.S. healthcare system in order to improve how we deliver care? I think we should still invite her back. Um, I think sometimes when we think about disruption, 
we think about disruption in one fell swoop. We don't topple the tree in one swing of the ax. We have to start. And the journey is not, I fixed healthcare because I did this thing and it's a cool app and look, it's fixed. This is a $3 trillion ecosystem with some very smart people in it who've been trying to fix it for a long time. We don't get to just come in and say fixed. What we get to do though is say, you know what, I'm serving a million and a half people today and I lower cost by about 10% for those people, but more importantly, their outcomes improve, they're more satisfied, and that gives me permission to do more stuff. And so five years ago, I didn't do this, but today I now have a bunch of data that says that's sitting on 14 billion claims of information that says, I can tell you that 25% of the doctors in your network, I hope there's no docs in, uh, in the room right now, I know you are, uh, uh, I, and I know you're not one of these docs, I can tell you that 25% of the docs in your network you shouldn't go see because they've got sanctions against them or because their, their quality ratings are terrible because I've got a bunch of data that proves that. Now, I couldn't do that five years ago, but I got permission by signing a bunch of customers and generating a business to go now add that value. You know, right now, how many people are on a medication that they could get for 30 to 40 to 50% cheaper if they went to the different source to go get it? Well, I know that for sure, and I can fix that if I can get a little bit more data and prove a little bit more. I think your hypothesis of I'm not, we're not fixing healthcare today, totally fair. We're not fixing healthcare today. But our aspirations are to change it. Nobody gets to jump in and start at the finish line. We gotta start and then we gotta grind. And we're in the grinds, but I'll promise you this, the aspiration is to do it and that's, we keep our eyes on that prize every single day. That was a really good answer. Dang. <laughs> I like it. So you talked a bit about values and principles, and I loved this quote from your interview with Seattle Business Magazine. The team is more valuable than the individual, and the culture is more valuable than the strategy. How do you put that into practice at Accolade, and what kind of culture are you intentionally trying to build? Culture of every business is different. We thank you for that question. I'm super passionate about culture. I'm super passionate about people and teams. It's what I love to do. I love building teams. And the essential part of building teams is not finding a bunch of people like you. In fact, you want to find a team that has different skills and different opinions and different perspectives than yours. But you have to agree on a common set of principles. How are you going to treat each other? Who are you? How do you make decisions uh, when no one's looking? How do we agree upon what's right and wrong? And if you can do that, and then you hold yourself to that standard every day, you have an opportunity. Obviously, you kind of also have to attract really smart people, <laughs> and they have to work really hard, and you have to be able to attract capital. There's a bunch to building a business, but none of that is gonna work if you don't have a foundation, in my mind, of common principles. Here's the other side of that story that I think people don't understand when I say this, is it doesn't have to be my set of principles. It can be anybody's principles. You know, I say this all the time. There are companies out there that I would never work for. Like, I don't agree with who they are, but they've built pretty successful businesses. The people who work in that business agree on those principles, and therefore they pull in the same direction. I just happen to find joy in the principle that we're gonna treat each other well, that we're gonna be able to trust each other, that we're gonna be open with each other, and that we're gonna do the right thing. That business is the business I wanna be a part of, and I wanna work with people who wanna be a part of that, and that it takes a lot of the baggage of every meeting out the door. I no longer have to question motive. I no longer have to question 
what's this guy after? I don't have to ask that. I just have to ask, how come they're trying to solve the problem differently than I am and how can we meld those principles? It just cuts out a lot of the BS. That was my best, I did not curse there. It was just BS, actually. <laughs> I'm going to insist on the view of you are not disrupting healthcare. Okay. And <laughs> yeah, and it's basically because the Department of, of Health and Human Services already recognizes the need for integrated care and the role that IT will play in doing so. My hope is that not only you are doing it, but that many other companies are working towards that integrated care. But my question is how do you plan or how do you build trust? The trust that you are talking about, how yeah. do you build it? Which I think would be your differentiator and how you can actually disrupt healthcare. I love that. You not only asked the question, you set me up with my answer. That was yeah. fantastic. <laughs> I, I need all my questions to be phrased in, that, in the form of a question with the answer. Thank you for that question because you're, you're absolutely right. Here's what we do differently. We don't send you to a call center that gets you off the phone in 30 seconds. We send you to an individual, we send you to a human being and that human being becomes your human being, your human being for you and your family. So you get me, I'm your health assistant. And once you get me, I give you my extension, I give you my direct line number and you can call me anytime you want. I understand your benefits, I understand your network and I begin to understand your family. You don't have to retell the story of the challenge you just had. And I'll solve any problem for you. And unlike when you call your insurance company and say, I lost my ID card, I don't grab you the new ID card and get you off the phone in 30 seconds. I ask you this follow-up question that says, hey, you're probably not just missing your ID card in your purse, you're probably about to go see the doctor. That's why you need a new ID card. What's going on? And that simple question that says, hey, what's going on? Leads to three other points that ultimately get us actually booking a doctor's appointment for you. What comes from that? Because unfortunately, and this is true in so many healthcare instances today, the service in, in that industry is really poor. People are used to being treated poorly. And so when you treat them as a human and you give them a human relationship and you solve problems for them consistently, you deliver superlative value, they come back because they've never seen it before. And when they come back, you now have permission to ask the next question. And that human relationship, if you can extend it, allows you to guide them. And so we actually talk about the idea of reciprocity. I got you your new ID card. I figured out that this claim that you couldn't understand. Now I have a right to ask you something. You haven't gone to see your doctor in two years. Can I book an appointment for you with your, with your primary care doc? That's our reciprocity. And that idea, that behavioral health model or behavioral science model we use to build that relationship is exactly what's different about us. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Okay, I'm gonna rescue you, Raj, from the panelists now and uh, throw you out to the audience. What was the biggest challenge in getting acquisition from your customers or oh, through perfect. the healthcare space? The thing that I think people don't understand, Murphy, about, about acquiring customers in this space is that it's not a direct line. And there's maybe three big challenges that we're still wrestling through. Number one is that 
the benefits buyer in corporations, we're selling to corporations and saying, let us help your employees and their families, is not necessarily viewed as a strategic buyer too often, unfortunately. The idea of trying new things or innovative things takes them out of their comfort zone. People don't go into benefits necessarily to be innovators and try new things. So impressing upon them that you can add value without really disrupting their lives. The phone call they hate is the phone call from the CEO or the VP of sales saying, how come my doctor's no longer in my network? Or how come you told me to go here and it didn't work? So that's part one. Overcoming that, that risk aversion is in part by proving your solution and showing them numbers that it works. Part two, and this is the part that I think that the rest of the world really doesn't understand, to get to that buyer, you have to go through a broker or a consultant. And that broker or consultant wants to do an evaluation, wants to run a $100,000 RFP, and that is more friction. And then beyond that, the third point is that the insurance company has an opinion. And their opinion isn't necessarily about driving innovation or value, unfortunately. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's about their profit pools and where those profit pools exist. And so you have to be smart in healthcare services to understand that the customer acquisition clip is not like other businesses. You, you don't get to go up and to the right. It doesn't go like that. It takes time. And you have to be smart about preserving your capital because it'll take time. But once you get going and you, be, you become established as a vendor, it gets easier. I promise it gets easier. Hi, um, I'm a student at Seattle U, and I was just wondering, because you're a technology-based company, how do you plan on protecting your um, customers' data as you grow? Because as you grow, you'll probably become a much more um, enticing grab for wrongdoers that would like to utilize such sensitive information you'll be handling. It's a, it's a great question. It's something that we spend a great deal of time on. There's, you have to think about data protection in buckets. Do you have process in place to ensure that you're doing the right things from a HIPAA perspective, et cetera, to ensure that you're only allowing the right people to access the right information? You have to put technology controls in place to assure that that's true as well. And then you have to put audits in place to ensure that you're constantly checking your own value and, and the validity of those, that process and that technology. We spend a lot of money on that. I knock on wood as I go through this. I never like to say we're, we've got it covered because it, that would jinx me and I, can't, I don't want to jinx us. So I'd, I'd say instead, you have to be ever vigilant and in this space, even more so. Any sort of challenge in this in, would, would severely diminish your, your trust with the customer. What I wanted to ask about is, and this kind of goes back to the discussion on disruption. You know, for example, we hear the term healthcare system, but, and this may be a cliche, but in reality, we have a sick care system, yes. right? We treat people's illnesses instead of trying to keep them healthy. And so, one thing I was curious about is what role do you think nutrition and lifestyle might play in the future of Accolade, given that? You know, one reason healthcare is so expensive in the U.S. is the fact that we eat a lot of junk food, fast food. We don't walk around. We don't exercise. And those clearly are, make a big difference when you compare it to the lifestyles of, let's say, people in Europe or people in Japan who are typically eating natural foods and living active lives. I think it's a great question. I think there's a significant wellness industry in the country that's focused on that very challenge of how do we keep people healthy? How do we keep people out of the hospital? How do we keep people from, you know, in the pre-diabetes state to steer them away from those types of outcomes? 
And my answer is unfortunately going to be more complicated than I want it to be. Here's the reality. There's a segment of the population that's willfully, that's making choices that if we can incent them or guide them or, or cajole them or coax them or incent them, can move away from the healthcare choices, uh, the health lifestyle choices they're making and live healthier lives. But there are endemic problems, I would submit, in our country as well, that make it very difficult for others to avail themselves of those opportunities. If you live in a place where the closest grocery store is seven miles away, you, you have an income where you, you don't have a car, and the idea of organic food is ridiculous to you because you could never afford it, and you work two jobs in order to pay the rent, and the idea of exercise is somewhat difficult, and by the way, you can't afford food for your kids, and a, that $1.99 Happy Meal, just to not have to hear your hungry child scream at night, is pretty enticing. And so we can solve some of the problems by improving the opportunities for people to avail themselves of healthier lifestyles. To really solve some of the other problems, we gotta attack some other bigger issues. And so the reason I answered the question in both ways is I think you're 100% right. There's a lot of value in healthier lifestyles and we can save a lot of money that way. But we shouldn't, as a, as a society, pretend that people who are unhealthy all choose to be unhealthy. Some of them are in a position where that's the choice they've gotta make to survive. I'm an MBA student here and I have a question on the subject of culture that you were talking about with, um, moreover, how you treat your employees and work with them. So in scaling your business and considering culture of scaling it um, and the attrition rate of millennials, statistically about two years, two and a half years, do you have a plan moving forward in your scaling of how you, you plan on you know, working with the gig economy and, and how millennials are uh, to keep them? My answer is going to sound pandering to you. I want you to know in advance it's just going to come out that way, and you're going to have to take me at my, at my word on this. I don't really buy this millennial thing. I don't buy it. I think people, when given choices to work at places they believe in, with people that they love, on principles that matter to them, stay. And my experience has been that that's true. I do think this generation wants that. And I think they're damn right for wanting it. And so we want to run our business or any business, pick a culture that appeals to those values, build an environment that appeals to those particular set of values. And I think you can retain your people. Now we'll see. I'm four years into the accolade journey. And this is a more relevant uh, time frame to that than Concur was. So we'll see if I'm right. But I'm not fundamentally changing behavior. I'm betting on the idea that people love working with people they love and they love working on stuff that's really hard and they love doing it in a way that, that in some way, shape or form, it's not just about money, it's about making the world better. You know, I get in touch with someone at Accolade, you know, they look at me holistically and everything like that. How do you overcome or what's your plan to overcome kind of the insurance company's culture of denial and things like that to really achieve your full potential, would that be easier to do in a universal healthcare type system like some of the current presidential candidates have proposed? So we think our service is applicable in any regard. No matter how we think about reconfiguring the health system and who's paying for healthcare, it's massively complicated. And it won't be uncomplicated immediately, no matter what choice you make. And so 
There is resistance though. That's the, your, your question is correct. The direction of your question is correct. There is resistance from existing incumbents in the industry to solutions like ours that steer away from how do I maximize profits and steer towards how do I improve the outcomes for that individual. That's not meant to be a controversial statement. It's meant to be a very factual statement. And so to the degree that friction was removed, we could grow faster for sure, but I, we're not building our plans based on that. So what kind of challenges do you see uh, when you are trying to use technology? Because like, I assume you are using machine learning or an AI. So are you getting into uh, the predictive analysis uh, space for healthcare system? Most of the data is non-rational and like, it's pretty hard, I guess, to use those systems for predictive analysis. So any thoughts on that? It is hard. It's not impossible. The industry, I'll tackle your question in a couple of segments. First, the industry's been using data for a long time to predict or to identify people who they believe, the industry believes, are about to spend money on healthcare. So if you were to invert the question though and say, how do I look at all of this information to determine what's the best recommendation to improve the healthcare outcome for that individual by leading them to a fruitful end to the encounter? And the encounter might be weeks long. Now you can start to use all of the data that you have, plus all of the encounters that we have with individuals to begin to guess what's the next best thing to do, not guess, use machine learning to determine the right next thing to do, what recommendation do we make to ourselves or to that individual, and then see how they make choices. And from those choices, we can ascertain what the next recommendation might be. Now that is what we spend a lot of time on. You know, who has a propensity to choose telemedicine versus wanting to go see a doctor? those types of choices. And here's what makes it so hard. Unlike in almost any sort of customer service oriented industry, when you're trying to buy a movie ticket, there's only so many ways you can go. Which movies do you want to see? What time do you want to go see them? What theater do you want to go? Like I can automate the living daylights out of that process. Healthcare's got permutations that are infinite. And those infinite permutations mean, and the finite number of engineers that you're able to employ in any business, means you have to be extraordinarily focused on the areas you want to invest your machine learning resource on and focus on the highest value. And that highest value, this is the last part of my answer, that highest value in the past has been who's the highest spender? I want to go find them. And we don't think that way. We think the highest value is focused, and this is what makes it hard for us. The highest value is focused on where do we have the maximum opportunity to improve the outcome? Great. Thank you so much, Raj, for being with us tonight. Let's give him a round of applause. Please. Thank you. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albert School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.